0: Welcome to Art Related Noise, the podcast of the Art Republic Gallery in Brighton. For this episode, we speak to Carrie Reichart, an artist maybe best known for her famous mosaic house in Chiswick. She's also one of the world's foremost mosaic artists. Using her work, she campaigns on issues such as the injustices of prisoners on death row, as well as remembering women throughout history whose voice has been lost. A passionate believer in social justice, Carrie is an artist whose work speaks to many. This is art related noise we started experimenting with painting there's so many avenues of art we're surrounded by images just being lost in this sea of possibility
1: announcing that i was going to be an artist it
0: brings the work i do alive even more they could be part of this work as well everyone's got their own personal connection to something carrie thanks for joining us on art related noise we are here in I think probably one of the most famous houses, I think, in West London. It's the Mosaic House. And anyone passing this cannot fail to notice that you've got your house covered from head to toe in colourful mosaic. How did, how did that all come about?
1: God, well... My first husband was doing landscape gardening, creating this kind of mad sofa and stuff in the garden. And he built this circle, sunken circle, and said, "Why don't you mosaic that?"
0: This is in the outside of the, the, yes, the house. Yes, in, in the garden. So yeah. he
1: said, "Why don't you mosaic it?" I thought, "Yeah, why don't I? I'll have a go."
0: So from the garden, you decided, OK, I'm going to mosaic the inside of no, the walls. No, no. At first,
1: I, just, I, just, I had just done that. But what happened is I started making mosaics. So Someone saw them because who ran where my daughter went to childcare and she said, please, come and do them at the school. Come and do them at the school. And, and my friend Karen, Karen Francesca, she saw the mosaics and said, oh, we could do this. And I think very, very quickly we realised that it was a wonderful medium to work with the community. And so for about, I don't know, about 10 years, we just made mosaics with everybody. So I kind of learnt mosaic making as I was teaching it. You know, I went from having never made a mosaic and never really running a workshop with anyone to literally working in schools, orphanages, uh, mental units, you know, with everybody. It was a really wonderful kind of experience because I think me, Karen and Mark, we, we kind of, especially me. And Mark,
0: Mark's Karen's brother. Yes,
1: ATM ATM. We kind of all came together and we started doing this and, you know, we were all quite insecure and nervous and we kind of developed as people
0: through teaching mosaic. So when did you decide to mosaic the outside? Because I've got all that, you started in the, in, in the garden, you sort of found a love for it and your yeah, you know, one's of... been
1: about 97 and then I was teaching in Southgate. Southall we were doing a lot of work community work in Southall and funnily enough I bought myself a book called Fantasy Worlds the Tashin book of outsider art and I'd bought it and I was looking through it and I was pouring through the pages you know because I'd always loved outsider art I've always loved outsider art whether it's from prisons or people who are untrained or I've, I really like artists intent I love the idea that people are compulsed that their artistic thing is a driven thing that they have to do because I think in a way it, especially like from prisons and things it can convey so many so emotive so I had this book and I was looking at this book and my father came round, and he said why don't you put a sign outside Carrie and I'm like what do you mean he said why don't you put a sign outside that says mosaics within you know tell people what you do and I suddenly kind of thought you know what I'm going to just mosaic the house that's what I'll do I'll mosaic the whole goddamn house and at the time me Karen and Mark were working in community art it was the same time we were doing Harold Hill which was the massive side of a library wall in Harold Hill there's a place where they recycled the least in the UK so they had this funding and we were doing this incredible mosaic 70% out of recycled stuff and we had a logo for stop burning trees and they wouldn't allow it they said you can't mosaic it it might encourage arson I'm like what? what? precisely and then we did the workshops and these kids these kids came up with amazing like posters and one had the planet and it had blood coming out as a tear and it said don't murder the planet the planet bleeds too and we were told we couldn't do it because it was depressing and we had to change it to the environment is everywhere which is meaningless obviously but you know it was that working with Steering groups working with people whose sole job it is is to kind of make sure you don't do anything And, and if you think about it, this is in like 2000 or something So it, it was oppressive even then and so I suddenly thought you know what I'll do my house I can do what I like no one can tell me what to do I'm gonna mosaic my house and so I started it then I think probably about 90 it would be 2000
0: What was the first thing that you put put on it?
1: I did round the door And the door, if you look, is actually made up of Indian tapestries. All of that daisy print and the print around the door comes from Indian tapestries because I was working in Southall teaching mosaics, making Indian tapestry pieces that went round imagery. And also the symbols that then go around the side are, I can't say the word, I'm really bad with pronunciation, but Andinka, is it? Andrinka. They're African symbols. So like one of them means the possibility of correcting one's mistakes. I like the idea that when you walk through the door, it's sacred. It's that idea as you enter someone's door and it's supposed to have, you know, signs and symbols.
0: And then sort of you recently finished it. Yes. Was it Was it last year?
1: You know, I, terrible. It's terrible. I think, it? I think it was 2017. <laughs> 2017. Because you,
0: you had, the thing is you, you had, I, I remember, because I remember writing about this on the blog and you had a whole load of scaffolding up and then some of the world's best mosaic artists just joining you in this mass mosaic I know, I know. that was inc- that must have been incredible to do that
1: yeah I mean the thing is is that the backstory is that I'd had scaffolding up for the front of my house for four years it was just not getting finished and also I couldn't decide what to do but uh, my friend is Adora Dora Paz Lopez who's like the most phenomenal you've met her she's yeah she's like, from
0: Chile she's, Chile she's
1: a Chilean artist yeah. now living in uh, Germany and, and it's currently installing the most phenomenal piece of work which is the bird bridge which is like bird stairs, I mean, and she's had hundreds yeah. of artists go and do work there. But basically, she said to me, "I'll come and give you five days and help you." That was it. I knew that by putting a call out and saying that was Isadora was here and I was here, and did people want to come? It was just like, and it happened so quickly. Do you know what I mean? In about three weeks, I had like people coming from all over the world from. Argentina, No, from Chile and from Germany and from France. And it was just amazing. And And then
0: you finished the house.
1: Yeah, and and really it was a very collective decision about what happened because Isadora did the scarab beetle, which is in the front of my house, which was to represent rebirth and relife. And uh, my friend Karen, she did the vines going up the side. Eugenia Ebril did the middle vine, but Karen Francesca came and did the vines because I'd always wanted like a helix symbol running up the side of the house. I'd always said I wanted this double helix and eugene represented it with the dmt molecules and karen did these vines and put sheila mcgee's is mm. that how you say the word i can never say it.
0: this is the celtic symbol of fertility Fetility, yes. yes that's right
1: well it's funny because you see on one side i've got well what my neighbor said when i put it up and she said she came over mary and said oh my god carrie what have you done put a 12 foot penis on the side of your house. I was like, oh, Mary, don't be silly. That's not, that's a tiki totem pole. That's your dirty mind. And she went, <laughs> carry it. has got a scrotum and everything. And, and it is, because it says, oh, come all ye faithful. I decided I wanted to put, oh, come all ye faithful, coming out the top of it. But the funny thing is, is like, I've been in therapy for four years. And after about two years, my therapist said, well, I should see your house. Have you got a photo of it? And so when I showed it, her the picture of my house, she did say, Why have you got a penis on the front of your house? So
0: she so so was it supposed to be a penis no, that you did is I that mean, your int- I
1: was I mean we did degree did agree to have a a tiki totem pole on the house, but I think Saiyan right. decided more that it would be a giant penis than me. I just decided on the oh come were you faithful. So with Karen it was quite a deliberate Decision between me and her to put a load of vaginas on the other side to balance it all out.
0: Oh right, is that why you did that? Yeah, I thought it's we sort of hidden it. away, aren't they?
1: They needed it. We've got a giant penis. We've got to get some vaginas in there on the other side. I thought
0: because because also on on the house, your house is packed with symbolism, as we've just heard. Mm-hmm but you've also got some of your activist background coming in there and there's you know you've campaigned long and hard for the rights of some prisoners on death row in America and you've got them commemorated on Yeah that.
1: well I mean the front originally I did just did the front of the house and one was a tiki theme and one was a Alice in Wonderland theme and then it all changed in 2000 when I wrote to, you know the big issue, the, yeah. the homeless cell. Well, in, I bought it once, and I was reading it. In the back, it had an advert called Human Rights. Could you befriend a man on on Could you befriend a person on death row? I thought, yeah, I probably could. You know, I was fascinated. I mean, I'm not going to lie, I was fascinated with with the whole idea of serial killers and things. I used to read when I was 13, 14. I was an avid reader of like the Moors murderers and Dennis Nilsen, and read all of those kind of books. I used to sit there and frighten myself. Books. And so there was part of me that thought, oh yeah, Chris. You know, Silence of the Lambs, I'll get to, I could start conversing, and I'd under, I, I think it was a fascination to understand why you would do that. Yeah. You know, it was always that kind of how could you do that? Well, you know, you'd have an opportunity to talk to someone and understand that, which is a very naive, stupid way to come, but it kind of highlights how a lot of us think, mm-hmm. have a preconceived idea about people in prison or, you know, or people on death row. So, I, I agreed. I just got given the name. I wrote to somebody, and like three weeks later, three weeks later, a letter came from Louis Ramirez, and I always remember it because it's stamped, you know, from the prison, and it sat on my sat on my fireplace for about three days because at the time I was a single parent then and I was just on my own with my daughter Poppy I was like oh my god what have I done I've written to a serial killer you know oh my god oh my god and then when I did open the letter of course it just says oh hi Carrie really nice to hear from you it's interesting to hear you do mosaics I've actually done mosaics what kind of mosaics do you do and it's like it's just the human it's the humanity that hits you in the face wow All all your preconceived ideas go out the window and suddenly you're just you have this letter from somebody who's just, you know. And so I wrote to Lewis for five years, and over that time, Lewis taught me that capital punishment means those with no capital get punished. I'm quite compulsive obsessive. You know, whatever I do, I get very involved in. so, So there was a period of time where I was so involved with death row You know, I read all the books, I watched all the films, I, you know, I was, it was the time when the internet was just coming so you could really Google stuff and look stuff up and I just kind of got very involved in that and then obviously what happened is my friend Lewis was executed and I went to be with him for the due days before they executed him and it was the only time I visited him but I was with, with him in prison. I told him that I would mosaic the back of the house, the garden, it was like that was the one thing I could do for him because I totally believe he was innocent of the crime. He, like a lot of people on death row, is, it was found guilty on hearsay evidence. That's it. There was nothing that linked him to this crime other than a known drug user was paid money and said he'd heard he'd done it. People don't realise that actually in America there was a test case that proved that your lawyer doesn't even have to stay awake during your trial. I learned all this, you know, because I'm just, what would I know about injustice delivered in Chiswick? Do you know what I mean? Other than the... you know, in my own personal world, but suddenly I was thrown into this world where it was very real and very personal, and I had to sit and watch someone who I considered to be one of my closest friends be murdered by the state.
0: Was, was that, that time before you, you saw him on, on death row that time, was that the first time you'd actually been to visit him? Or yes,
1: you... yes, yes, And and actually it was funny because prior to that I was quite phobic about flying, I'd had bad experiences actually on acid on flying and i really didn't i hadn't flown for a lot and the thing is, is most people think that when you write to people on death row that you're the kind of kind one that you're counseling them that you know but that's not my experience of any of the relationships i've ever had when i've written to someone in prison because in a sense you write about the mon- the, the mundane things of your life and that's like um it's like a window to the world for them you know because i used to write to lewis and i'd say Oh my God, you know, I feel really guilty because I'm writing to you about my weight or about my boyfriends or about, you know, petty little things and you're sitting, waiting in a cell to die. I feel really bad. And Lewis was a fantastic writer. He'd won awards and things for writing. He wrote back and said, Look, Carrie, when I write to you, it gives me my humanity. I can be the person I was outside prison. I love to be able to just be able to counsel you or to talk to you or to, you know, to be. It, it, I could see how it would enable him to be more than the man in the prison prison. prison. And uh, and it was a wonderful relationship in that sense. I mean, I was quite... I used to write to him probably every week or every two weeks. It was quite an intense relationship at that time. But I'd started to write to him when I was single and, and, and uh, just had Poppy. And over the time that I wrote to him, I had like other kids and things. You know, it was Rudy's middle name is Lewis. And, I, and, and it, that was not long before Lewis was actually executed. But in that time, I managed to send him a copy of the birth certificate to show that Rudy had his middle name.
0: Wow. And at the back of the house now, not many people know, but, but set in resin is his, is Lewis's card. Yes, is is because when I was ID with card. him,
1: when I was with him, I said to him, if you can send me anything that's um, metal or plastic, I can include it. I'll include it in the wall. And not long after he was executed, I got an envelope for him and it, that was inside it. I mean, I, he shouldn't have even been executed without it. And they stopped having those cards not long after that.
0: That sounds like a really special relationship that you had.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was... In fact, when I... Because I, I wrote to Herman Wallace after this. I wrote to Herman Wallace, who's one of the Angola Three. But he summed it up. He always said that, you know, in these situations, actually, what you give, you get back three times. One of my favourite quotes is, um, the quickest way to happiness is to find a cause greater than yourself. And for me, it really was, you know, the best thing I ever did was write to Lewis because it changed my whole life in the sense that prior to writing to Lewis... I wasn't driven in the same way I am now. I am very insecure. I never did public speaking in In fact, me, Karen and Mark used to argue about which one of us would possibly say anything when we'd do these public art pieces and they'd say, does anyone want to say anything? We'd be like, you, no, you, no, you say so And none of us, none of us could speak. And I, and I wasn't that driven. I did all the community work. But what happened is, is when I saw the injustice happening to someone that I cared so deeply about, it motivated me in such a way. You know, it was really only that which directed my work for so many years. I became so driven about it. and. I only started public speaking because I wanted people to know about death row. I wanted people to know about my friends and the injustice, and I found the perfect vehicle in doing that was through my art. But I don't think I would ever have achieved any of the things that I've achieved subsequently or been able to go around the world now and do public speaking. If I didn't really believe that in a way, you know, I had their spirits invested in me that, you know, it wasn't me really speaking. I was there to speak for people who I've seen walk to their murder, walk to be killed by the state and remain resolute in their belief in their conviction and their desire to have their deaths mean something.
0: And with your art, I suppose it gives you a unique voice, doesn't it, to tell these stories, to, to speak about people like Herman, who is commemorated on the front of the building, and, and, and Lewis and, and others in the Angola Free. It's a unique mechanism for you to to keep well, remembering them.
1: The thing for me is that the making of it is where my therapy comes in. We're called the Treatment
0: Rooms Collective because... So this is you, Karen, and well, Mark, your collective to- name.
1: Well, really what happened is, with my f- first husband, James, we got permission to go look round Hackney Mental Hospital on the basis that we were going to make a film in there. It was a disused hospital. And I saw a sign that said treatment room, so I unscrewed it and took it with me. And I put it onto... It came to go onto my studio door. Because I recognised even then that this was my therapy, you know. if you know, I would could end up in a mental asylum, or I could end up just in my own little space in my studio door making art because you asked about the mosaics I think when well, as soon as I did mosaics I discovered craft discovered how amazing it is to be lost into a process the process rather than the idea rather than being wrestling all the time because I struggle already with intrusive thoughts and so when I did art those thoughts would be constantly running wild I still think I came up with good ideas but when I discovered craft and applied that to my work, it was like, oh, there's this process and this is really calming and nice. And so when I put myself into these experiences that, you know, I know could have easily unbalanced me, I had the art to protect me. I came back and after Lewis was executed, I must have mosaic practically six, seven days a week for hours every day for like eight months. You know, it was a massive driving force to do it.
0: And I remember another piece of work you did that the with uh, Kenny Zulu Whitmore. You mosaicked an entire black taxi cab.
1: Yeah, that was a real team effort. The- Taxi was a different kind of undertaking because I was working then with Sean Wanish she was a huge you know she was hugely involved in helping with the Kickstarter campaign and helping to do all that and obviously Laurie Bell aka Lady Muck she helped to kind of come up with the main ideas of it and did all the interior but that was another one which I actually was doing at the time that I was um, going through a separation and I was like it was about a year afterwards actually but I wasn't in a good place at that time at all I was actually in um, AA or NA or one of the A's but again it was that thing where I'd have to go and you know struggle through my own kind of mental uh, problems by just sitting there sticking spirals you know together sticking them over and over again and you know and and that was really like we had a in the in, in the studio, we had people come in every day, and we d- I designed it in a way so people could everyone could help make these. They're just little tiny beautiful tiles that are glass. Very delicate, aren't they? is it evanescent the word or ever Evanescent, <laughs> which means that people could anyone could sit there and slowly make these things because it's all done in reverse. It's all quite um, it's very time consuming.
0: And why did you decide to do the, the taxi? Because it's out there now, and, it, and it's again, it's one of these massive, impactful, all-encompassing pieces of art. Why a taxi for, for Kenny Zulu Whitmore? I don't actually know.
1: I think it was partly because our friend Pete drove a taxi, and he... I mean, it wasn't a decision... I mean, these things are not usually planned out, because we don't usually have much money and things, and it was... I don't really remember how it became the Zulu... Voodoo Liberation Taxi, I think it was the idea of a taxi was floated around because we were hanging out with a a friend who happened to drive one. But it was me and Lady Muck who kind of came up with Voodoo Zulu stuff. I mean you have to remember lots of these ideas that come about late at night after we've been playing around with altered states,
0: shall we say. <laughs> but you keep going though. You 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 seem to have a decision at the in this sort of late the early hours of the morning and then you actually follow it through.
1: Yeah, no, I am good at that. I would say that's one of my better qualities is that if I put my mind to something I'll I I, I do it. <laughs>
0: I've heard you describe yourself as a craftivist in the in the past. What does that mean and where does, does that come from? And do you, do you still consider yourself a, a craftivist now with the work that you do?
1: Good question. Uh, the word craftivism comes from Betsy Greer. She coined it in 2003. She's like an artist academic in America. And I think it came from a knitting group she was in. But she kind of brought that word into the lexicon of life but craftivism always existed it's just the word wasn't there I mean there's always people that viewed craft and activism but she coined it and it kind of crafts become very popular you know there was a time where craft was just in the It was just what old fuddy-duddies did. But this whole kind of DIY, there's a whole kind of movement that you can trace over the last probably 15 years where you now have craft sections in bookshops and you could see it's now your craft beer. Everything's craft, isn't it, now? I just think at the time it was a kind of a growing movement that I I kind of put my name to and believed very much because at the time we were doing craftivism. We were certainly making very crafty objects and they were a form of activism, I wouldn't call myself a craftivist now, because I don't think that what I'm doing is a kind of an activism. I, I think it would be an unfair definition. I did think I should be called an archive, no, what was it? A, an archivist.
0: An archivist. It, yeah. Because
1: I'm taking, like, the people's history and archiving yes. it and putting it into public art. But I wouldn't call myself a craft. I, I always get called it and get, you know, they say, oh yeah, you know, a craftivist. but. I'm nervous about all labels, you know. I wouldn't even say I was a mosaicist. I wouldn't say I was a street artist. I wouldn't, you know. I'm, I'm nervous about any labels that are given to you because I'm I'm all of those things, and none of those things, you know. There's I'm not your typical mosaic artist. in In the mosaic world, it's a bit like, well, you don't use small tea and you don't do this. And in the ceramic world, it's because I just put surface onto, you know, work with printing on clay, an image onto the surface and not the form. And I'm always on the periphery and I kind of like being there.
0: So you touched on the the archival type work there and and, and this is something that I've seen your work grow into over recent years particularly around suffragettes. What I might describe as forgotten women's history that you want to rediscover and bring back out into the public space.
1: Well I think my public work I mean, I was lucky to start getting public work. I think there was a time where I didn't really get much. I didn't, I'm not sure if I applied for much, but, you know, having done so much about Black Panthers and Death Row, it's not really a calling card for getting big public commissions. Getting the Winston Churchill Fellowship Award was, was obviously helped me. But I think it was the luxury of, A, going for jobs and being awarded them. Um, and then at the same time, I've, had, I've spent so long Uh, investigating and and investing time in learning how to transfer images onto tile so it just became this really what I think I do now is a kind of ceramic collage. If you look at my the work that I was doing in private you can see how it's kind of has this a lot of pop you know it is kind of pop art but you can see how I've started to use more and more collage and printing so as soon as I got a job in public art it was obvious to me that the one thing I could do was to apply that onto a large scale and so with the South Acton job I was thrilled to get it and really I only got it because the local people. Is this the tree of life? Yes the tree of life in South Acton I really only got it because I was working already so much with the local communities there helping them set up a gallery and helping uh, you know to help do things that they insisted that a local person was put onto the into the mix and that local people could could have a say in it and so that was a real opportunity for the first time for me to use all that print and work and obviously I'm working with Karen and with ATM who I've worked with for years so ATM designed the tree and you know and and Karen mosaiced most of that tree and and you know we did work together on it but the kind of idea of the printing of history was really an extension of my private work. And it was, you know, it was great. And so now I'm doing the same thing for Finsbury Park. Me and Karen are working totally together on this piece and we're doing something very similar. But being invited to Aberdeen and kind of doing it in a street art world... was This very, is for the New Art Yes, Festival. for New Art in Aberdeen. When they invited me to go there, I thought, God, well, you know, this time I really want to make it site-specific. I want to make sure that I'm doing something that references the place. Because I really... I do... I'm very aware of the fact that I'm making something that's permanent. It's not like painting something. This is like permanent and it's going into this, you know, phenomenal town centre that's all granite city and, you know, if you want to remove my work, you're going to have to get a hammer and a chisel and smash that off and, and I'm conscious of that. So I wanted to try and do something that's, you know, worthy of being there. So. New art, I said, you've got to let me come up and look at your archives. I've got to go up there and see for myself what there is. So, yeah, they they did. They took me up there. I went to the archives and I realised it was useless. It was all in old English. It's impenetrable. You know, I I don't know what I was thinking I was going to see. But this wonderful guy led us all around and showed it. And he said, well, what are you interested in? And I kind of said, well... I'm kind of interested in witches or women or those type of things. And he said, oh, look, here's a, this wonderful article that's all been taken from the archives that someone has meticulously looked at all the information and, and, and written, and he gave me all this information, and that was it. And it was also Year of the Women. It was, isn't it, twenty seventeen? the year that... Or was it 2018? It shows you how bad my dates are. Is when women over 30 and women who have a certain amount of money got the vote. Right. And so we always celebrate it.
0: It's the anniversary, yes. wasn't it, of, that's it's right, not all, some, some women some and women all men get, getting the vote, which is yes. in 1918.
1: And I always think that they should possibly um, celebrate the fact that working class men got the vote as much as, you know, it's kind of that history where we turn it into 180 words on Twitter and it just loses. We lose the understanding of what happened because it's really important to understand that it wasn't everyone or not all women got the vote. Poor women had to wait another 10 years, was it, to get the vote? That's right. You know, so I wanted to try and kind of make reference to that. And, and because it was Year of the Woman and, and there was all, all this focus on it, it seemed the perfect opportunity to go down that path. It, so, and really, new art gave me license to just run wild with what I wanted to do. So, given the choice, I thought, well, let's get some women's history going on because there's so little of it in the public eye.
0: And you did a piece with uh, Shakespeare as well recently uh, yes wasn't that wasn't well, yeah, Stratford?
1: no, i was the first visual artist in residence for shakespeare's birthplace trust how about that how yeah. did that come about yeah i went to an, i saw a job i applied for it i went for an interview i was very shocked because it was an all women five women panel interview and i've never been to a panel that was all women let alone majority women so and it was really funny because they asked me about shakespeare and i was very honest because i am very honest i'm kind of autistic in that way of like if being honest and i said oh, if i'm honest i did o level and a level i did macbeth no i did othello and merchant of venice but ugh, i don't really like it <laughs> you know it's impenetrable i don't understand it you know i'm not someone who's a great shakespeare lover but i'm very keen to find out you know about it and i, I walked out of that interview thinking there's no way they give me that job and then they phoned me up and said we want you to have it
0: what was the selling point what did they what, why did they do that
1: i think because They want someone to come kind of fresh into a job, want someone that's not got preconceived ideas or, you know, is honest. Because if I don't understand it, then at least I'm going to try and present that in a way that might be more interesting or understanding or, you know. But, I mean, they were lovely people to work with. And you focused it
0: on Shakespeare's wife, wasn't it? Yeah.
1: And I mean, and that was basically because I was in um, Bob's kitchen, you know, Bob Osborne. I was in his kitchen and I was saying, oh my God, I've got this Shakespeare job, you know, and he said, well, you already work with Shakespeare. Really, do I? Well, I don't know, did I, when did I work with, and he said, look, because he'd bought a plate off me, which is his, which is which Anne Hathaway's cottage, and I'd put um, Only Fools and Horses on it, lovely jubbly, and I'd put that on a plate and he'd bought it from me and he had it on his wall, but he knew that was Anne Hathaway's cottage and I didn't, and I didn't even know who Anne Hathaway was. So even when he said, that's Anne Hathaway's cottage, I'm like, well, who's Anne Hathaway? And he said, well, that's Shakespeare's wife. And I was like... Right. OK. And so that's when I suddenly started to think, well, why don't I even know that Shakespeare has a wife? Who is this Mrs. Shakespeare? How come I've spent the last, what, almost 10 years working with, because I work a lot with, with that particular design because I always loved the whole quintessential British imagery of it, of this lovely cottage with flowers outside, this thatched, roof, you know, but it, her name is tiny. So that was the kind of point where I kind of thought, well, this interests me. and and to be honest I found Shakespeare was too overwhelming where would I start where would I start with that and so I just got drawn into that and then I got drawn into like the fact that Jermaine Greer had just written a book called Shakespeare's Wife or about Shakespeare or you know that there were there were interesting things so that just kind of made me go down that path.
0: So bringing her story back Well,
1: really, there there is no story. We don't know who Shakespeare's wife is because she wasn't. They didn't really bother to record it all. That's the point. Shakespeare's wife's whoever you want her to be. You know, some people will make her very puritanical you know they'll make her to be this boring person that stayed at home or or she's often portrayed as this kind of like really <clears throat> nympho that grabbed poor will off the streets forced him to have sex with him got him up the duff you know that i mean if you look if you really look into it people like anthony burgess and very famous male writers have written dreadful things about anne Hathaway, like terrible things I was interested in how all of these people could construct all of this narrative that maligned this poor woman
0: and what's your narrative of her how did you portray her
1: well I kind of portrayed her in both ways I was trying to try to show I mean I, I mean I was also talking a lot about social media so I took the only face the only face that exists of Anne Hathaway that we think might be her and I put it into my phone and did facetune on her and turned her <clears> into an Instagrammable face and how she would look if she was had her nose smaller and her lips bigger and I played around with that type of idea of who would Anne Hathaway be now and how would she present herself now. So Laurie helped me make fantastic, helped design fantastic fake Hello magazines based on the Shakespeare's wife and how she would sell herself now. Out if shakespeare's wife was alive now you know she would be there pumping it out on social media
0: a, a new online life basically
1: yes it was called shakespearean with an anarchy over the a yeah so that was really interesting it's really interesting and it's really lovely to know because one of the pieces i made was to buy or not to buy and uh, that's now you know held forever in shakespeare's birthplace trust along with a few of my ceramics so it's pretty pleased about that
0: Carrie, thanks for talking to Art Related Noise. Thank you.